You're listening to the Tree of Life podcast, where we desire to be a bridge between the two covenantal peoples, physical Israel and spiritual Israel, by inspiring the non-Jewish part of Messiah's body to reconnect with its Jewish roots through biblical teaching and worshipful demonstrations, and to work towards greater understanding and reconciliation between Messiah's body and traditional Judaism. And now, here's Rabbi Joel Lieberman. Well, amen, amen, the tree of life, the tree of life. Welcome to the tree of life this morning. We know that the tree of life first appeared in the center of the paradise in Eden, but of course it was soon lost to humanity on the part of Adam's transgression. But in the back of the book, the book of Revelation, it reappears in the center of the paradise of God, resurrected on account of the faithful obedience of Yeshua as mankind's last Adam. My name is Rabbi Bernie Lieberman. I am Rabbi Joel's cousin. Just flew in from Measherim in Yerushalayim, Jerusalem, filling in for him today. I live in an ultra-Orthodox neighborhood, as you might imagine. But if you would stand with us today as we begin our service this morning with the... Well, Shalom Aleichem. Peace be unto you. As we celebrate this amazing, amazing deliverance, by the way, this is just one of many miraculous deliverances from the brink of destruction. The Jewish people continue today to be under serious threat. And interestingly enough, this modern day threat to the majority of our Jewish people in Israel comes from the same location as the threat we're going to read about today in the book of Esther. We all know that Jewish people has a very weird way of repeating itself. At a time when our Jewish people around the world are faced with a bona fide, renewed fear of anti-Semitism, the Feast of Purim should speak to us today loud and clear. A couple of years ago, I was anguished in disbelief as our House of Representatives could not pass a resolution to simply condemn anti-Semitism in response to a single anti-Semitism. Semite agitator who seemed to have so many of our House and Senate members not willing to come against her. That was Democratic Representative Elon Omar from Minnesota. Even Jewish congressional members were shaking in their boots. My friends, there are still the Hamans of the world. Let me repeat, there are still the Hamans in the world. That are seeking the destruction. Kick people when they lie on the floor. Dr. Laura Kalab, a Muslim doctor in Ohio and a self-proclaimed member of the anti-Israel BDS movement, tweeted, quote, that Jews are dogs and I am brutally unsympathetic about the Holocaust. I wish Allah would kill the Jews. 
But that wasn't the scariest of all of her tweets. Quote, as a doctor, she said, I would purposely give all the Jews the wrong meds. And it goes on and on. The Women's March a couple of years ago, the Women's March co-president Tamika Mallory in Washington in a February 2018 speech said this, quote, Jews were responsible for all of this filth and degenerate behavior that Hollywood is putting out, turning men into women and women into men. Louis Farrakhan, by God's grace, he, she said, has pulled the cover off of the Semitic, the satanic Jew. And I'm here to say your time is up. Your world is through. As these modern day Hamans rise up, so are the modern day Esthers and Mordecais rising up through us, through individuals, through organizations like the ACLJ, the AIA, Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, Brigitte Gabriel, etc. Yet that is the very point of this holy day of Purim. It is the same God who remembers his covenant and will compete. He will complete rather his promise of Israel's ultimate redemption. Now we learn from the book of Daniel that there is a battle going on in the heavenlies on men between good and bad angels. In the case of Daniel, the angel of the Lord and Michael, Michael, a leading angel whose job, by the way, is to protect our people in Israel. These are fighting against two leading bad angels, one called what? The Prince of Persia and the other, the Prince of Greece. And I believe the bad angel of Persia is the demonic prince leading Islamic extremism in the world today. Interestingly enough, one of the key geographic centers of this spirit is in the regime of the Ayatollahs in modern-day Persia. The Prince of Greece seems to represent to us Western atheistic humanism. One of the centers of this spirit is in the United Nations. My friends, it is more than a coincidence that these two powers, Islamic extremism and the United Nations, have concentrated their efforts together in condemning Israel. We are facing the same spiritual battle that Daniel faced. In fact, the angel of the Lord explicitly told him that the fullness of this battle was going to take place when? In Acharit Hayamim, in the last days. Daniel's not here, but Michael is, the prince of Persia is, the prince of Greece is, all the other angels, good and bad angels, they're here, they're still here. The battle is still the same, my friends. Today, we again will look at the historical account of the Feast of Esther, recognizing it was just another one of many of Hasatan's attempts to destroy the Jewish people and to destroy God's plan of redemption. You see, if Haman has succeeded, I said if Haman had succeeded, There would never have been a Jewish Messiah. There would have never been any Jewish people for the Messiah to come from. How many of you know that the Nazis banned Purim observances? Adolf Hitler on January 31st, 1944. <laughs> he said that if the Nazis went down to defeat, the Jews would celebrate a second triumphant Purim. How right he was, my friends. On October 16th, 1946, 10 Nazis were hung in Nuremberg like the 10 sons of Haman. And one of them actually said that Julius Stryker, one of the 10 that was hung, said, 
right before he was hung, Purim, 1946. And so the festival of Purim today is a feast of rejoicing. It is a feast of gladness. It is a feast of feasting in the triumph of the God of Israel in the victory. And so it's a merry occasion. And we're actually encouraged to be boisterous when reading the book of Esther in the synagogue. Children and adults can cheer, should cheer, when Mordecai's name is mentioned. And we drown out the name of Haman with groggers. And we stamp our feet and we boo and we hiss according to the command in Torah to blot out the memory of Amalek of which Haman was a descendant. Today, my friends, the world is likewise beginning to understand that it is so dangerous to remain silent in the face of someone who seeks to destroy the Jewish people. And so the Jewish people are to remember and to celebrate this festival under instructions from Mordecai throughout every single generation. Now, I love what Esther 9.27 states. It says that anyone who joined the Jewish people was to observe this prescribed time as well. And considering that the book of Esther ends with the Gentiles in Persia celebrating the victory as they join themselves together to the Jewish people, is it not so appropriate, my friends, in today's Messianic synagogues that both Jew and Gentile should celebrate together throughout the entire world? You see, Purim is, after all, a biblical feast, not just a national celebration like Hanukkah. Now, pur is, a, is an Assyrian word, actually, puru, meaning a stone, meaning a, a pebble. It was used for casting lots. And so Haman, he tried to choose the day, he tried to choose the day that our Jewish people would be destroyed the 13th day of this month of Adar by casting lots. What's a lot? It's a quadrangular die with the numbers one, two, five, and six on it. And it reminds us when Solomon writes, one can cast lots into the lap, into one's lap, but the decision comes from the Lord, right? Now, don't take that to Vegas, by the way, that scripture. And so as we read Megillah Esther, as we read the scroll of Esther today, following a time of worship and praise and a kid's uh, presentation, we're going to see it is a story of split second timing and instant obedience, if you have ever wondered, my friends, how God is really involved in the circumstances of your daily life, you only need to go to the book of Esther. So you see, the question for us this morning is this. Could similar events described in the book of Esther happen again? Absolutely. They can. What are those events? Quickly, an international federation of 127 nations, an evil man gaining influence by lies and deceptions. Check. Yeah, that can happen. A law passed to kill all the Jewish people in the world and by inference, Christians who stand with Jewish people. Check. Yeah, that can happen. Persia playing a key role in a plan to annihilate the Jewish people. Yes, Iran, that we're seeing that today. Number five, how do you like this? The worldwide body of believers enjoying a royal bridal type intimacy in grace and beauty, in worship, seeing Esther as a picture of the ecclesia, the body of Messiah. How about that the ecclesia is being challenged today to recognize her Jewish roots as Mordecai challenged her. 
the ecclesia interceding and fasting for the salvation of the Jewish people. And at the very last seeming last moment of total disaster, there's a sudden and supernatural turnaround. I believe that's coming in our future as well. The people of God will fight with authority and gain the victory. And finally, the kingdom being transferred into the hands of godly people, resulting in joy for all the nations. Are we seeing these events beginning to repeat themselves? Absolutely. Absolutely. I'm going to ask April to lead our team. If you would stand as we worship boisterously, but with humility before the Lord today on this Feast of Purim. Blow the trumpet, blow the shofar in Zion. Sound an alarm. The day of the Lord is here. It's coming. Hallelujah. Well, are you ready? You have your app open? You got your scriptures ready? We're going to go quick. We're going to fly. Time does not allow me this morning to give an extended historical account of the book of Esther. But you might recall in the book of Daniel that the Persians came on the biblical scene of history around or so 539 BCE in fulfillment of the prophetic handwriting on in Aramaic on that Babylonian palace wall spoken of in Daniel chapter 5 in which the message read, quote, God has counted up your kingdom. Yes, I'll do it a little bit later. And brought it to an end. You are weighed on the balance scale and you've come up short. Your kingdom has been divided and given to the Medes and to the Persians. Now the Medes were the ancestors of the modern day Kurds. Kurds, by the way, are Muslims. They're not Arabs. They inhabit areas of southeast Turkey today, northern Iraq, western Iran. But believe it or not, the Persian Empire was very favorable to our Jewish people at this time. You recall King Cyrus of Persia actually told our Jewish people who were in exile that they could come back, back to Israel, rebuild the temple and their faith. And they did so the following year, the scriptures tell us, under Zerubbabel. But not all of the Jewish people went back in Persia to Judah after Cyrus allowed us to do that. Ezra chapter 2 says only 42,000 plus came back. And as a result, though, the Persian Empire was actually blessed by God for their benevolence over the next three centuries until they were defeated by Alexander the Great. Unfortunately, today, the ancient Persian Empire under Cyrus, who helped us rebuild our temple and our faith, has now risen in our generation to become the not-to-be-appeased enemy of our Jewish people. Persia, since 1935, has been known as Iran. And certainly Israel sees Iran as the greatest potential threat in the region. A little more on that later. Our story takes place a few years later, around 482 BCE. Open up with me to the book of Esther, chapter 1. We begin reading in verse 1. And these events took place in the time of Ahasuerus. The Ahasuerus, who ruled over 127 provinces from India to Ethiopia. And it was in those days... When King Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne in Shushan, the capital. In the third year of his reign that he gave a banquet for all of his officials and courtiers. The army of Persia and Media, the nobles and the provincial officials were in attendance. And he displayed the dazzling wealth of his kingdom and his great splendor for a long time. 180 days. 
Ahasuerus, known to secular historians as Persian King Xerxes I, or to a lesser extent, the Septuagint tells us Artaxerxes II, reigned from this time 486 BC to 465 BC, Persia being at the height of its power. And King Xerxes tried three times here to invade Greece, but he failed. And so this half-year party may have been in place to boost morale between the first and second invasions. We pick it up in verse 10. On the seventh day of this party, when the king was in high spirits from the wine, he ordered Mehuman, Bizta, Harvona, Bigta, Avagta, Zetar, and Karkas, the seven officers who attended him, to bring Queen Vashti before the king with the royal crown. In order to show the people and her officials her beauty, for she was indeed a good-looking woman. But Queen Vashti refused to come at the order of the king, which he had sent through his officers. And this enraged the king, and his anger blazed inside of him. Now, Jewish commentators list Queen Vashti as one of the foremost beautiful women in history behind my wife here. King Xerxes deposed Vashti as queen, held a beauty contest which lasted over three years to find her replacement. And so the maidel, the unmarried girl Esther, was chosen over many, over many lovely shikses, thus becoming the first Jewish Persian queen. But she kept her Jewish identity a secret, my friends. She even took on a pagan name, the name Esther. At the time, it's a Persian variant, meaning star. Actually, was a Persian variant of Ishtar, a Babylonian fertility goddess that supposedly came to earth in a giant egg. This is like the original Mork from Ork or something like that. But, <laughs> but it's not exactly a bold statement of her Jewish identity, right? But her Hebrew name is what? Hadassah, meaning to hide. And so in Israel, everyone dresses up in costume to display the secrecy of Esther's life before she reveals her Jewishness. My friends, I find it extremely comforting, and I hope you do as well today, that some of the greatest people in scriptures struggled with their human weaknesses. You see, God is not looking today for perfect people to accomplish his plans. He wouldn't need the Messiah then. Now, what's important in the life of Esther is that she didn't stay bound by her fears. She didn't stay bound by her weaknesses. And even though she's highly assimilated here, God opened up a door for Esther to be used. And so like a theatrical drama, the curtain comes down in chapter one and it goes right back up as we continue in chapter two. Look with me at verse five. There was in Shushan, the capital, a man who was a Jew whose name was Mordecai, the son of Yair, the son of Shim'i, the son of Kish, a Benjaminite. He had been exiled from Jerusalem or verse seven, rather, uh, he had raised Hadassah, that is Esther, his uncle's daughter, because she had neither father nor mother. The girl was shapely and good looking. After her father's and mother's death, Mordecai had adopted her as her own daughter, verse 10. And Esther did not disclose her people or family ties because Mordecai had instructed her not to tell anyone. And so we see here that Mordecai, was Esther's, if you're going to yell it, man, you got to yell it out. 
You're supposed to shout me down. This is the day that you can shout me down here. All right, thank you. But Mordecai was Esther's cousin and her foster father and told her not to disclose her Jewishness. Why? Probably latent anti-Semitism in the air. And so right here, right here in the book of Esther, we see the ploys of Hasatan, the adversary. He tries to deceive through fear. To have Jewish people remain quiet about their Jewishness, while at the same time bringing destruction on their own house. My friends, there are a lot of hidden Jewish people here in America, in the world, who are assuring the Jewish community of a spiritual holocaust of assimilation, which affects all people, including Messianic Jews too. So the curtain goes down and Act three begins in chapter three. We pick it up verse one. Sometime later, King Ahasuerus began to single out Haman, the son of Hamdatha, the Agagite for advancement. Eventually he gave him precedence over all of his fellow officers. Now Haman, as I mentioned earlier, was a descendant of Agag, king of Amalek. You recall when Israel was wandering in the wilderness for those decades prior to settling in the promised land, it was the Amalekites, it was the first of these Canaanite nations who came out to attack us after the Exodus. They would not let Israel pass without fighting them. And for this act of arrogance, the Amalekites were punished from God by having their name blotted out and having God declare that he would be at war with Amalek from generation to generation. You see, if Saul, being Israel's first king, had done, who had, if he would have just destroyed Amalek and his descendants like God told him to do, we wouldn't have, he wouldn't have lost his throne, I believe. He, we would have been spared future generations. Israel would have of a lot of tsuras, a lot of grief. But Samuel rebukes Saul for his disobedience, and then Samuel chops Agog into pieces before the Lord. And so Haman rose as a descendant to a position of power in the Persian Empire. This was a huge empire, ranged from uh, India to Ethiopia, a huge province of 127 provinces, containing over 90% of the world's Jewish population at this time. But ironically, my friends, ironically, Mordecai was from the same tribe as of Benjamin as Saul was. And it was through Mordecai that God brought final destruction upon the Amalekites. We pick it up in verse 2, chapter 3. All the king's servants at the king's gate would kneel and bow down before Haman. Because the king had so ordered. But Mordecai would neither kneel nor bow down to him. The king's servants at the king's gate asked Mordecai, Why don't you obey the king's order? But after they had confronted him a number of times without his paying attention to them, they told Haman. In order to find out whether Mordecai's explanation that he was a Jew would justify his behavior. Haman was furious when he saw that Mordecai was not kneeling and bowing down to him. However, on learning what people Mordecai belonged to, it seemed to him a waste to lay hands on Mordecai alone. Rather, he decided to destroy all of Mordecai's people, the Jews, throughout the whole of Ahasuerus' kingdom. Haman turned against all the Jewish people because of one Jew he disliked. Haman represents anti-Semitism. 
hatred and rebellion against the God of Israel. And he is an anti-Messiah-like figure here. He is actually called, quote, the enemy of the Jews in this book. And as Jewish people, we are in the same position today as we were back then. There were individuals against us as spoken by scripture. You can just read the book of Nehemiah, for example, just like those who oppose Jewish people today. Man, we are seeing this on a daily basis from Saturday Night Live doing anti-Semitic sketches, all kinds of things happening. In every generation, there has been a Pharaoh. In every generation, there's been some sort of Inquisition or Tsar or Hitler or Stalin or Ayatollah or Hussein or Ahmad Inajad or a Rouhani Soleimani who sought or seeks to destroy the Jewish people physically, culturally, and spiritually. But we know that our Jewish people will survive. Why? Because God said so. He said this, quote, this is what the Lord God says, who gives the sun his light for the day, who ordained the laws for the moon and stars to provide light for the night, who stirs up the sea until its waves roar. The Lord of hosts is his name. If these laws, what laws? The sun, moon, and stars. If these laws leave my presence, says the Lord, then the offspring of Israel will stop being a nation in my presence forever. Amen. Jeremiah 31, 35, and 36. We'll pick it up in verse 8 of chapter 3. Then Haman said to Ahasuerus, he said, There's a particular people scattered and dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom, O king. And their laws are different from those of every other people. Moreover, they don't observe the king's laws. It doesn't befit the king to tolerate them. If it please the king, have a decree written for their destruction, and I will hand over 330 tons of silver to the officials in charge of the king's affairs to deposit in the royal treasury. This is the classic anti-Semitic line, isn't it? They are aliens among us. They're different. You see, Haman offered here 330 tons of silver. 150 million U.S. dollars to pay for the cost of his destructive vendetta of destroying the Jewish people. Now, perhaps this was a real bounty, a real fund that Haman was able to pay. Or perhaps, perhaps it might have just been a wild, exaggerated promise to show the king the fervor of his hatred against Mordecai and the Jewish people. It might also have been a portion of a bounty he expected to gather from the Jews he planned to kill but nonetheless, not only was it a blind hatred, but a financial deal that united the king and Haman against our Jewish people. We pick it up in verse 13. Letters were sent by Courtier to all the royal provinces, quote, to destroy, kill, and exterminate all Jews from young to old, including small children and women on a specific day, the 13th day of the 12th month, the month of Adar, and to seize their goods as plunder. And so Haman sits a fit, sets a fixed date for the Jewish people's destruction 11 months ahead of time in the future. My friends, that took place nearly 2,500 years ago in Persia. And what is taking place in modern day Persia is no different today. Is Iran an existential threat to the Jewish people today? Duh, no brainer. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu has consistently said that 80% of Israel's security concerns are tied to Iran. 
That is an incredible and a sobering statement, given that Israel faces so many diverse threats in the region from both outside the borders to inside the borders. We've got suicide bombers orchestrated by radical Muslim groups. We have missile attacks by Hezbollah in Lebanon and Hamas in the Gaza Strip. We've got an unstable border with Syria, with civil war plagued Syria along the Golan Heights. And then we've got Iran after that. My friends, nuclear deterrence will not help prevent Iran's pursuit of nuclear weapons, President Joe Biden. Why? Because the Iranian regime has religious motives. Iran and its mullahs have declared they're going to wipe Israel off the map. Why? Because according to Islamic prophecy, Shia prophecy, expectation is mounting, my friends, for a third or final jihad in which the 12th or hidden imam will be revealed. Also known as the Mahdi, this Islamic Messiah is supposed to be a direct descendant of Muhammad. He will have divine status, according to them, according anointed by Allah to lead Islam to world domination under Sharia law. This Mahdi, according to, again, Shia Islamic tradition, he goes missing in 874 of the Common Era, and he's supposed to return at a time of great world chaos just before the final judgment. And when you talk to ex-Muslims actually about this who have become believers in Yeshua, they're often shocked to read as they read the description in the book of Revelation, the book of Daniel as well, of the anti-Messiah for the first time, and they come to the sad realization that the long-awaited Messiah of Islam is actually that, the anti-Messiah of the scriptures. Iran is in a mad dash, as you know, has been for years to create a deliverable nuclear weapon, no matter what you choose to believe, no matter what the United States regime chooses to believe. Iran has repeatedly vowed if Israel attacks them, they will close the Strait of Hormuz to shipping and attack the Saudi Arabian oil facilities at Raz Tanur and Abqaiq. What would that do? It would immediately shut down 40% of the world's oil supplies, uh, a seaborne oil rather, and 20% of our daily consumption of oil. And such an interruption in that chain would push gas price. You think you've got a problem with paying four bucks for gas now. It'll be $20 a gallon at that point. So the curtain goes down on this act and it goes up in act chapter four. Uh, in chapter four, let's begin reading quickly in verse one. When Mordecai learned everything that had been done, he tore his clothes, put on sackcloth and ashes and went throughout the city, lamenting and crying bitterly. He stopped before entering the king's gate since no one was allowed to go inside the king's gate wearing sackcloth. In every province reached by the king's order and decree, there was great mourning among the Jews with fasting, weeping, and wailing as many lay down on sackcloth and ashes. Mordecai realizes here the severity of this situation, doesn't he? My friends, I believe Ruach Adonai, the Spirit of God, wants to inject the burden of the Father for his purposes among the Jewish people into our hearts for this hour. You see, it was Mordecai's job here to prepare Esther for her hour of influence before the king. Mordecai knows here the enemy had a plot and a plan. I, I love, I'm looking out at my friend Jeff back there. He's going crazy every time I mention the M word, but I didn't say it. So. 
He also knew that he had to have a connection to prevent the enemy's plan from prevailing. Esther was his connection. She had been positioned by God and they seized the right moment she did through prayer and fasting and preparation. Well, God worked through them both, through Mordecai, to alert Esther to her timing and the timing of her intercessory acts on behalf of the Jewish people. Notice that although Esther became queen, she loved Mordecai so much that she's willing to die for him and die for her own people. Who is Mordecai symbolically? We'll answer that in a moment. Look with me at verse 13, chapter 4. And upon being told what Esther had said, Mordecai asked them to give Esther this answer. Do not suppose that merely because you happen to be in the royal palace, you will escape any more than the other Jews. For if you fail to speak up now, relief and deliverance will come to the Jews from a different direction. But you and your family's father's family will perish. Who knows whether you did not come into your royal position precisely for a time such as this. And Esther had them return this answer to Mordecai. Go, assemble all the Jews to be found in Shushan and have them fast for me, neither eating nor drinking for three days, night and day. Also, I and the girls attending me will fast the same way. Then I will go into the king, which is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. Esther's response here was to recognize the responsibility that Adonai placed before her and respond in his strength using spiritual weapons of warfare. Today, we're all faced with a similar challenge. Soon, our very existence will be threatened. As Jews, as believers in Yeshua, as a nation, as a Western civilization, we are threatened. And like Esther, we will have to choose how we're going to respond. We can respond in fear. We can choose to protect ourselves. We can deny. We can stay ignorant of the signs of the times happening all around us. We can become passive. We can believe the lie that there's nothing that you and I can do to make an impact except hide out and wait for Yeshua to return. Or we can start wielding spiritual weapons of warfare that God has given us that the enemy does not want us to use. We have a choice. What are those weapons? Prayer, fasting, blessing others, praise, thanking God in advance, declaring his word, taking our thoughts captive, taking our emotions captive, taking our words captive. And so Mordecai's challenging Esther here. He saw that this coincidence, do you really believe there's such a thing as a coincidence? There are no coincidences with God. But he saw that this coincidence of her being the Jewish queen could help. And despite her fear, Esther becomes a woman of open faith. She could have been killed. That's what it says here, right? The king had not put out his scepter to her. But she had a plan. And she would invite Haman to a special banquet that she and only the king would attend. And then she would accuse Haman of his treachery. And we see in verse 14, Umi Yudea, Imleet Kazot Higyat La Malchut. Who knows whether you've not been called to the kingdom for such a very time as this? 
these words to Esther from Mordecai. I believe, you Mr. Q, my friend, but anyway, are a challenge from the Father to us this morning as well. We have come to the royal position. We have come to the kingdom of God for such a time as this. These were the same words that President Harry Truman was hearing in his ears to vote in favor of the establishment of the state of Israel in 1948. Esther was persuaded by these words, and we should be persuaded of them as well. Our lives become certainly more serious and valuable when we consider God has placed us in situations and positions for his purposes, for his timing, not our own timing. May we be ever mindful today, my friends, of where we are, why we're here, what our lives can accomplish when we live our lives to the fullest for him. My friends, we don't see God in our lives until we take that faith step like Esther took. And the drama goes down, the curtain goes down and comes right back up in chapter 5. Pick it up with me at verse 9. But when Haman saw Mordecai at the king's gate, he neither read, he neither rose nor moved for him. Haman was infuriated, infuriated with Mordecai. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself. And went home where he summoned and brought his friends and Zeresh, his wife. Haman boasted to them about his vast wealth, his many sons, and everything connected with how the king had prompted him and given him precedence over the other officials and servants of the king. Indeed, Haman added, Esther the queen let nobody into the banquet with the king that she had prepared except myself. And tomorrow too, I'm invited by her together with the king. But none of this does me any good at all. As long as I keep seeing Mordecai the Jew remaining seated at the king's gate. At this, Zelish, his wife, and all of his friends said to him, Have a gallows 75 feet high constructed. And in the morning, speak to the king about having Mordecai hanged on it. Then go in and enjoy yourself with the king at the banquet. Haman liked the idea. So he had a gallows built. Haman couldn't even wait till the 13th day of Adar to have the Jewish people killed as was already decreed. But that night, the night before Mordecai was going to die, the king had insomnia. How many of you think that this insomnia was a coincidence? No. Maybe you're dealing with some insomnia as well. Maybe it's not a coincidence. The king couldn't sleep. He opens the record books and it's told of Mordecai, who has a great position here in the king's court. It's recorded that he saved his life from an assassination attempt that the king had forgotten about. Back in chapter two, you can read this. My friends, God did not forget Mordecai. And we see in chapter six, verse three, the king said, what honor or distinction was conferred on Mordecai for this? And the king's servants answered, nothing, nothing was done for him. And the king then asked, well, who's that in the courtyard? For Haman had come into the outer courtyard of the king's palace to speak to the king about hanging Mordecai on the gallows he had prepared for him. The king's servants told him, it's Haman standing there in the courtyard. The king said, have him come in. So Haman came in. And the king said to him, what should be done for a man that the king wants to honor. Haman thought to himself, 
whom would the king want to honor more than myself? So Haman answered the king, for a man the king wants to honor, have royal robes brought, which the king himself wears, and the horse the king himself rides with a royal crown on his head. The robes and the horse should be handed over to the one of the king's most respected officials, and they should put the robes in the man the king desires to honor and lead him on horseback through the streets of the city, proclaiming ahead of him, this is what is done for a man the king desires to honor. And the king said to Haman, hurry, take the robes and take the horse, as you said, and do this for Mordecai the Jew, who sits at the king's gate. Don't leave out anything that you have mentioned. Haman came in. Right after the king must have just finished reading the daily journal kept with him about this issue, God came through at the 11th hour. It's a trait of the Lord, isn't it? It is said the night is darkest before the dawn. Chapter 7, pick it up, verse 1 quickly. So the king and Haman went to Queen Esther's banquet. And the king again said to Esther at the wine banquet, Whatever you request, Queen Esther, you'll be granted it. Whatever you want, up to half the kingdom, it will be done. Esther, the queen answered, if I have won your favor, O king, if it pleases the king, then what I ask to be given me is my own life and the lives of my people. For we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, killed, exterminated. If we had only been sold as men and women slaves, I would have remained quiet. Since then, our trouble would not have been worth the damage. It would have caused the king to alter the situation. King Ahasuerus asked Esther the queen, who is he? Where is the man who dared to do such a thing? And Esther said, a ruthless enemy. It's this wicked Haman. Haman stood aghast. Terrified before the king and the queen, and in a rage, the king got up from the wine banquet and went out to the palace garden. But Haman remained. Haman remained, pleading with Esther, the queen, to spare his life, for he could see that the king had decided to do him in. And Haman had just fallen on the couch. Big mistake. He had just fallen on the couch where Esther was when the king returned from the palace garden to the wine banquet. And he shouted, is he even going to rape the queen here in the palace before my very eyes? The moment these words left the king's mouth, they covered Haman's face. Harvona, one of the king's attendants said, look, the gallows 75 feet high that Haman made for Mordecai, who spoke only good for the king, is standing at Haman's house. The king said, hang him on it. So they hanged Haman on the gallows he had prepared for Mordecai. And then the king's anger subsided. The king's heart is in God's hands like streams of water. He directs it whithersoever he pleases. King Ahasuerus had a change of heart toward destroying the Jewish people. This change of heart was huge. Again, the king had allowed Haman's earlier request. Why? Because of a stimulus of $150 million coming into the kingdom. But Haman makes the final mistake here of pleading before Queen Esther. He did it in such a way that his actions here are so badly misrepresented. He appears to be forcing himself on the queen in her bed. 
And my friends, the price that Haman paid seems rather appropriate for the evil that he sought to bring upon the Jewish people. But the act that sealed his fate was actually innocent. Paul warns us about the appearance of evil. In which case, Haman lost his life. You see, the wickedness that Haman had planned came back on him and his family. Solomon offers us an explanation in that regard. He says, the righteous is rescued from trouble. Instead, it comes on the wicked. Now, Esther and Mordecai could have been discouraged because, you know, they could have been discouraged that deliverance hadn't come after the death of Haman. But the answer is here. It's still there. Chapter 8, verse 5. She said, if it pleases the king, if I have won his favor, if, if the matter seems right to the king, and if I have, have his approval, then let an order be written rescinding the letters devised by Haman, the son of Hamdatha, the Agagite, which he wrote to destroy the Jews in all the Roman, uh, royal provinces. For how can I bear to see the disaster that will overcome my people? How can I endure seeing the extermination of my kinsmen? King Ahasuerus said to Esther the queen, and Mordecai the Jew. Listen, I gave Esther the house of Haman and they hanged him on the gallows because he threatened the lives of the Jews. You should issue a decree in the king's name for whatever you want concerning the Jews, seal it with the king's signet ring because a decree written in the king's name and sealed with the king's ring cannot be rescinded by anyone. Verse 11. And so the letters said, that the king had granted the Jews in every city the right, quote, to assemble and gather and defend their lives by destroying, killing, and exterminating any forces of any people or province that would attack them, their little ones, or their women, or would try to seize their goods as plunder. You see, the only thing that could circumvent this law was to write a new law that would successfully negate the effects of the bad law. Hear me. The king gave the Jewish people permission to unite for the defense of their lives here. And I believe this example of legally overcoming the negative effects of an already existing law is a corollary to the actions that Adonai would take as he brought his son Yeshua into the world. The new law was written through the life, the shed blood, the death, and the resurrection of Yeshua. And it negates the effects doesn't negate the Torah, it negates the evil effects because we can't keep it without changing it. My friends, the enemies of our Jewish people were not dissuaded here from their desire to wipe us out. However, we were empowered with a new decree to defend ourselves. And I believe that is a word for our generation of Jewry. In the end, the Jewish people had to fight against the Persian forces hell-bent on their destruction. And with the Lord's help, our Jewish people miraculously prevailed. Likewise, as followers of Yeshua, our faith in the new covenant is going to be challenged. Wow, you can't be Jewish and believe in Yeshua. It's going to be challenged. Even though the new law has been written for our success. We will still have to resist the attacks of the aggressor, Hasatan. Victory will not come easily, but it is assured. And so this eloquent example of how death and destruction were averted through a new law is exactly what our father accomplished through Yeshua and the Brit Hadashah, the new covenant. 
Look with me, verse 16, chapter 9. The other Jews, those in the royal provinces, had assembled, defended their lives, and won rest from their enemies, killing 75,000 of those who hated them, but without touching their spoil. And so we see here what happened, my friends, when our people stand up, fight for their Jewishness. God had allowed our people to be threatened with total annihilation. Why? So that the entire Jewish community of Babylon which had been assimilating, would stand up. And it had to start with one person. Had to start with Esther. We as a Jewish people survived because we were willing to stand up for being Jews. Final verse, verse 3, chapter 10. For Mordecai the Jew was second only to King Ahasuerus. He was a great man among the Jews, popular with all his many countrymen. He sought the good of his people and interceded for the welfare of their descendants. Do you see a connection here? Mordecai is weeping for his people. He's humbling himself. He risked his life. He triumphed over his enemies and he's next to the king in power and authority. Mordecai was accepted by his Jewish brothers and spent his days seeking the welfare of his people and speaking shalom to their seed. Likewise, my friends, the Messiah Yeshua wept over Jerusalem. He humbled himself to a shameful death and he's now seated at the right hand of God, triumphant over his enemies. Yeshua Newsflash, he is more and more being accepted by his Jewish brothers today. And as his ambassadors, he wants us to seek the welfare of Israel and to speak peace through Yeshua to his Jewish seed. The salvation wrought during the time of Esther was orchestrated by the same God who allows turning the tables on his enemies. He always turns the tables on his enemies. Haman was hung on the same exact gallows prepared for Mordecai. Then the death of Yeshua, uh, uh, the death of Messiah Yeshua was the beginning of the end for Hasatan. Quote, which none of the princes of the world knew. For had they known it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. As we've studied this story today, we put a lot of emphasis on Esther and Mordecai. Mordecai's obedience to speak to Esther and her, you guys are getting good at this. And her gracious anointing to submit to the prophetic word, thereby saving Israel from Haman. And the powers of Persia, media who are attempting to exterminate our Jewish people. But have you ever wondered, and we glossed over it as we opened very quickly, have you ever wondered why Queen Vashti was so unprepared to serve the king at that moment, at that party? She did not just disobey the king. She's unprepared for her kingdom. She was not willing to trust. She was not willing to worship under the authority of her husband, the king. Queen Vashti, we could say, was out of alignment with Adonai, out of alignment with her husband, the king, out of alignment with her kingdom. And that misalignment cost her everything. 
stripping her of her position, stripping her of her privilege. I'm gonna ask the ushers to come forward quickly. We find in the Chronicler in 2 Chronicles chapter 20, These words, verse 20, the next morning, they rose early, went out into the Tekoa Desert. As they left, King Jehoshaphat stood and said to them, listen to me, Judah, and you inhabitants of Jerusalem. Trust in Adonai your God and you will be safe. Trust in his prophets and you will succeed. You see, trust establishes us in the kingdom, but obedience and remaining steadfast to the words of this book is what causes us to prosper in the kingdom. I think one of the strongest teaching that you and I can receive at this time, at this festival, is when Mordecai operates in the office of prophet, speaks a word to Esther, warns her, if she does not follow through in her trust and obedience, deliverance is gonna come from another source because God will not break his promise to his Jewish people. God desires to rescue and to save our Jewish people, not only physically, we saw that in the wars of Israel over the last 70 years, but also spiritually. And that's gonna take finances. Our Messiah Yeshua said, if we cannot be faithful with wealth, who will commit to our trust true riches? My prayer is that you and I, as we partner today together to bless Israel, both here in San Diego and abroad, will become a united voice and testimony of Queen Esther in our city and in our generation. Father, we thank you and we praise you for the Megillah, Megillah Esther today. Thank you, Lord, you've stirred us up. You have been stirring us up to take a bolder witness, a bolder step here in San Diego, to go on out in these other mediums to get the word out on all these other platforms, iTunes, Pandora, everything, Lord, because it's time. It's time for our Jewish people to hear about the good news of the Jewish Messiah who has come and is coming back again. The Christian community needs to understand the Jewish root of their faith. They need to collaborate with us together to be one in the olive tree, multinationally. The time is demanded, Lord. And so we're honored to play this part. Hashem Yeshua HaMashiach. Amen. Amen. As they're circulating with that, you can make a tax-deductible gift out to Tree of Life. I want to, for our final minutes together on this Purim, I want to fast forward to the end of day's fulfillment of this festival. Where is this all leading to? Go with me to the back of the book, Revelation chapter 20, quickly. We read the following in verse seven. When the thousand years are over, the adversary will set free from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for the battle. Their number is countless as the sand on the seashore and they came up over the breadth of the land and surrounded the camp of God's people and the city he loves. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. The adversary who had deceived them was hurled into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. At the end of the millennium, Adonai is going to release Hasatan from the abyss, his prison, to demonstrate his, after a thousand years not being able to be reformed, 
and to prove the character of those generations of men and women born during the millennium who never previously had been tempted to rebellion. Hasatan will then resume his former work of deceiving the nations into thinking they're going to be better off submitting to his authority than to Messiah Yeshua's authority. And Hasatan will eventually gather innumerable soldiers from all parts of the world to fight against Yeshua. And the people who follow Satan in this exceedingly brief, but it's going to be fierce rebellion by being deceived will evidently be those by, by those who have not trusted Yeshua in the millennium. And even though everyone will know who Yeshua is during that thousand year reign, not everyone will trust him as the Messiah. Only believers are going to enter into that millennium, the Bible tells us, but everyone born during that time is going to need to trust Yeshua and be born again as well to experience spiritual salvation, eternal salvation. Interesting here, the phrase Gog and Magog, it's referring to the world's rulers and nations in rebellion against Adonai. Gog, the ruler, Magog, his land. You recall Bell's Ezekiel 38 and 39, in which the total invasion by Gog from the uttermost northern parts to invade Israel in the last days finds its fulfillment here in chapter 20, where we see a worldwide rebellion at the end of the millennium. Now, many of you might be a little confused here. You recall the Battle of Armageddon takes place a thousand years earlier. It's going to be a similar ultimate world war, but it will not be the final one. This is the final one the Gog of Magog war that Ezekiel 38 talked about. My friends, there is still another battle, an even greater one, since it will be Satan's last stand. It's his last assault, the battle of Gog and Magog. This battle is not fought by the believers protecting Jerusalem, but it is fought by God. Quote, for fire came down from heaven and consumed them. Who? The armies of the adversary. And look at verse 10. Look at it. Adonai is going to cast Hasatan, the deceiver, where? Into the lake of fire that he previously had prepared for him and his angels. The lake of fire is the place of eternal judgment, quote, day and night forever and ever. This is the final event, my friends, in the long and wicked history of the one who originated, originated rebellion against God anyhow. And this will be his final abode. This judgment will constitute the ultimate bruising of Satan's head back in Genesis 3.15, the first messianic prophecy. Haman's end, Haman's end came the same way. It seemed like, as we've just read, that Haman's, like fire came down from heaven and devoured him suddenly. He's put on the gallows quickly. All these people in the nations will come up against the believers, against the Jewish people, especially against Yeshua, and they will be likewise devoured immediately. This is the final event in the long and wicked history of the one who originated rebellion against God. There will be no more Hasatan. Think about it. There will be no more Hasatan on this planet. Haman represents Hasatan. Mordecai represents Messiah, who has the final victory over Hasatan. May God bless you at this season as you meditate upon the one who delivers us from all of our enemies. Father God, we thank you and we praise you for this parable, God. Lord, we may have come in here a little bit dejected or, or discouraged, maybe even depressed today.
but we've seen the end of the story. The end of the anti-Semitic story that is this virus that has been latent in times, that has been out in the open at times. We see the ultimate end of the one who originated rebellion, the author of anti-Semitism, getting his just desserts. We thank you that Yeshua has triumphed over the adversary. We are B'nai Elohim, we are sons of God. We are heirs and joint heirs with Yeshua. And we revel in that today on this feast of Purim. Are we ready? We're gonna dance. Amen. Now follow Darcy, everyone up. We're dancing Hallelujah. the Hora. Hallelujah. Now we all can do this. Your right foot and your left foot. It's no harder than that. Nagila Hava, Nagila Hava, Nagila Venishmecha, Hava, Nagila Hava, Nagila Hava, Nagila Venishmecha. Keep playing, keep playing. All right. Well, before we bless you today, I want to encourage you to stick around in the foyer. We've got Hamantashen, 
Payments Head for pastries. We've got t-shirts and jackets and hoodies and polo shirts. We've got new Messianic books out there. Enjoy yourself today at this festival of Purim. May the Lord bless you and keep you today. May the Lord make His face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May Adonai lift up His countenance over you and grant you peace. In the name of our peace, Yeshua of Nazareth, light of the world and the hope of Israel. Shalom, everybody. Woo! Thanks for joining us this week. Make sure to visit our website, treeoflifeca.org, and be sure to subscribe to the show in iTunes, Google, Spotify, or via RSS, so you'll never miss a show. While you're at it, if you've found value in this show, we'd appreciate a ratings on iTunes, or simply tell a friend about the show. That would help us out too. If you like this show, you might want to check out our Facebook page, Tree of Life Messianic Jewish Congregation, to see more content, including our weekly live stream. Be sure to tune in for our next episode as we continue to explore our Jewish roots through Scripture.